Welcome to the Need to Know podcast from the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. I'm your host, Aaron Jones, bringing you the best nonpartisan information from our experts that you need to know. Happy to welcome back to the Need to Know podcast, Benjamin Gadan, who is the Deputy Director of the Latin American Program at the Wilson Center and also Director of the Argentina Project. And he is also a podcast host, and you can catch his podcasts on Argentina in the Argentina Project podcast and To The Point, which is a podcast that really does some quick hits and brings folks uh, from all across the expertise landscape uh, to talk about Latin America. So thanks again for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me, Aaron. I wanted to bring you in today to talk about how the global pullback in the economy is really affecting Latin America. And you, you, one, of, one of the things that you have studied so much is economics, and you are really our go-to person on uh, Latin America economics. And uh, you know so much about Argentina, which is experiencing uh, a serious, uh, as they have at many points in their history, now they seem to be experiencing another pullback. So tell us where Latin America was before this challenge erupted and what it portends for their future. Absolutely. I mean, I think Argentina is an extreme example of a phenomenon that unfortunately we've seen throughout Latin America, which is very vulnerable economies before this pandemic, right? I mean, this pandemic is stressing economies that were thriving, but unfortunately Latin America went through a very long, slow period, frankly, beginning in 2014, when this long period of, of high commodity prices that was known as a super cycle came to an end. And Latin America really didn't use that period, speaking very generally, to accumulate savings to be able to handle the downturn. And so, you know, what they did is they used it to expand government spending, expand government programs with some success, you know, expanding the middle class, reducing poverty, um, denting inequality, but not preparing themselves for any kind of downturn. And they've never found a way to restart growth. And so as you can count, that's, you know, five, six years of quite slow growth in the region leading up to this very negative, very traumatic disruption from the pandemic. And, and Argentina, you reference, is a special case, as it usually is. It was in an even worse condition, like Ecuador is on the verge of default, you know, before, again, the pandemic began. Um, we could talk more about Argentina and the implications that are, you know, absolutely disastrous for that country. But again, it's just a more extreme version of a region-wide trend that left the region so vulnerable even before COVID-19. And, and you also have, I, you mentioned Argentina, you mentioned Ecuador. There's also a migration challenge, one of the largest migration challenges in the world going on uh, from Venezuela, going through Colombia and down into uh, these other countries on the western side of the continent. And you have Venezuela anyway, just, the, you know, what was all, which was already a basket case, right? So, um, so once this hits... Uh, first of all, I guess, how bad is the situation on the public health side in Latin America and countries? How are they how are their public health systems dealing with that? And is there 
sort of the economic might to be able to handle that situation? The, the list, I mean, I, I told you the economic vulnerabilities, the list of challenges in Latin America before the pandemic is, is quite long. You've mentioned migration. You know, the Venezuela crisis has left more than 5 million Venezuelans out of the country, mostly in Latin America, probably half in neighboring Colombia. You know, this was a disrupting economic life, causing political challenges, extraordinary strains on public health systems that, as you can imagine, needed to be in better shape to deal with this pandemic. So, no, the list of challenges was vast. Another problem in the region was the lack of confidence in governments. I mean, now you have governments trying to impose social distancing, asking for major sacrifices of a population. And most governments in the region came into this year with very low public approval ratings. Not only were they low, but there was an explosion of social unrest last year that left you know leaders really on edge. Places like Chile, one of the more prosperous and stable countries in Latin America, is now trying to reform its whole constitution to answer public demands to reduce inequality, improve public services. You had protests in Colombia, massive protests in Ecuador. The president fled the capital for a period of time. Bolivia, you had a president chased out after trying to steal a fourth term in office. So not to mention the Venezuela crisis that's been going on for years and causing disruptions not only from migration. So no, the list of you know vulnerabilities and eccentricities was, was vast leading up to the crisis. And as you've pointed out, a lot of that has been exacerbated by these economic dislocations. So if governments didn't have the resources to answer public demands for better public services before, imagine what they'll be left with after this crisis where they're desperately trying to stimulate the economy and, and shovel money to companies to reduce uh, the layoffs, right? You already had growing inequality. You had growing unemployment. You know, that public health systems, if you're strained in Colombia dealing with migrants, imagine now that you're trying to address the spread of this disease. If you already were unpopular and your public health measures in certain cases, we can talk about Mexico and Brazil, have not been well received, imagine your political standing after this trauma eventually ends. So, no, you're right. I think there were a number of other vulnerabilities going in that had been, most cases, worsened by this pandemic. You mentioned that there were countries kind of shoveling money at com- at companies. What, uh, I guess, what is the approach of, uh, maybe take a few examples throughout Latin America. We've seen, you know, two to three trillion dollars go out the door for various reasons in the United States to, to go into various programs to prevent layoffs and everything else. Is there a stimulus approach that seems to be popular in Latin America, or is this kind of instability that they were already experiencing causing them to just kind of do some sort of scattershot things? It's a real mix, but as is our theme with, with everything in Latin America now, a lot of it is conditioned on the conditions before the pandemic. So a place like Argentina was locked out of capital markets, $44 billion in debt to the IMF, has very little access to multilateral development financing and has no access to borrowing, had one of the highest inflation rates in the world already, over 40%. So it's dangerous to just print pesos to be able to handle stimulus, which is its approach so far. And so very limited in what it can do. Other places like Peru that had been in better standing, Colombia, have been able to borrow normally, get some money from the International Monetary Fund. Um, And in the case of Peru, extraordinary size of the economic stimulus. So it really depends a lot on the financial standing of the country going in, its reputation, its national savings. Chile is one of the outliers in the region that in times of booming copper prices, it actually puts money aside 
and so has money to spend. Places like Mexico and Brazil in general have pretty responsible fiscal policies. Um, and sometimes they've been able to, you know, exercise the central bank and the, mon- the fiscal authorities, you know, some serious stimulus spending. But I will say this, it's not uniform, even if it's an approach, right? As often in Latin America, you have conflicting ideologies that are brought to bear. So some countries, Mexico, Argentina come to mind, you know, consider bailouts of large corporations as some sort of neoliberal Washington consensus style policy that they really may not embrace, even though those are the large employers, we in the Latin American program recently hosted a discussion. We had the CEO of, of Arcos Dorados, Golden Arches, who runs the McDonald's franchises throughout the entire region. We had someone, in, a Mexican an executive who handles resorts. We had someone from an airline in Argentina. And, you know, you hear very different things that they're experiencing around the region in terms of whether the big companies are going to be bailed out or is all the funding going to small enterprises and to the poor, vulnerable communities. Now, again, I think I should recognize small enterprises don't have any buffer will not likely have any savings. Um, You know, the poor communities have no savings, no food stockpiled. I mean, the needs are urgent. But there really is a question, is this ideologically driven or are we being pragmatic? Do you have to choose because, as we've talked about, your going in position was very weak, the cupboards were bare? Or is there a bit of politics coming into play as well when it comes to, you know, whom receives these government supports? And in the case case of a, a place like Argentina, which you study so closely, it seems to me like they're avenues for escape just keep getting cut off from them. So what does a country like Argentina do? Just using them as an example. I think Argentina is idiosyncratic. And I think talking about Argentina gives an even gloomier picture of the whole region. And so I would caution, even as pessimistic as I am for how quickly the region to recover, I would just kind of put a caveat and say a discussion of Argentina would make you think that the region will be in an endless conflagration. And all you'll see is sort of smoke hovering over South America you know, for the indefinite future. And I would say it's not that bad other than in, in places like Argentina, where, where really it's beyond gloomy. I mean, the country, as, you know, of, you know, this month may find itself in default again, um, even more isolated from the international financial community, unable to really get a lot of support from international financial institutions, unable, frankly, because of bad policy in many cases, to figure out a way to grow. So even if it says, you know, give us a little bit of debt relief, restructure this debt burden we have and let us you know, sort things out. It's not clear where growth comes from, right? It relies so much on commodity prices, which will not you know, increase until the global economy recovers, and that will be slow. That's for oil. That's for its soy. Um, and it's one of the most closed economies in the world. So even when trading globally improves, it doesn't really see a lot of the upside from that. Um, it doesn't have, you know, the labor laws are rigid and it's expensive to produce there. You name it. And so even if it somehow, and I don't know how, manages this debt nightmare, it's really hard to see how it recovers in terms of growth. And its new government just elected at the end of last year doesn't have a lot of fresh ideas for how to improve productivity and competitiveness. Um, It's actually moving away from global trade. There's a Mercosur customs union that includes Brazil that had been negotiating really for the first time in its history since the early 90s, serious free trade agreements with Europe, with Singapore, with Canada. And Argentina just said, you know what, this is not the time to talk free trade. This is a time to protect jobs, protect our economy. Now, that may sound familiar, right? That's happening in the U.S. It's been happening elsewhere. But, you know, for Argentina, if it doesn't really engage in global value chains and start becoming more competitive through trade, it really is hard to see how it recovers other than another miracle where China somehow starts growing at 12% a year again, and Argentina can just ride the wave of high prices for its beef and its soy and its oil. 
And you've done some work um, in the Latin American program about the role of China. And it's, you know, it has used soft power over the last few decades and projected itself into a lot of areas like Latin America. Tell us a little bit about China's involvement and where they have been before this challenge. And then we can talk about where you think things might have might, might go after we're hopefully on the other side of this. Absolutely. I mean, China has been an increasingly important player in Latin America as basically everywhere in the world, you know, for many years now, after having been completely absent, right? I mean, as big part of China's, you know, going out policy and becoming more globally engaged was this search for natural resources. And those have been discovered for China in Latin America, whether that's oil in Venezuela and Ecuador, whether that's soy in Argentina, Brazil and Paraguay, copper in Chile, they have found in the region a source of critical resources. They've also found a place to put their companies, right? They have all this so-called excess capacity. Companies that are state-owned enterprises or get a lot of support from the state that need projects. They also may have too much steel and other materials that they need to put to good use. And so one of the ways China subsidizes its enormous growth typically is to export a lot of this capacity. So they lend tremendously to regions like Latin America with huge infrastructure needs. Countries that can't, you know, borrow cheaply on their own will get financing from China. And the Chinese come in with their own companies, often their own materials, and they build dams and ports and railroads and highways, often to ease the exporting of the resources they need. So it kind of all helps China, but it also increases China's influence in the region and the importance of China. And that's where kind of the U.S. foreign policy framework comes in particularly under this administration, but not only under the Trump administration. This concern predates the Trump administration. The, the way it's talked about has changed dramatically. The idea that this is so-called debt trap diplomacy, explicitly urging countries in Latin America to walk away from China. That's quite new. But under the Obama administration, and I, I worked in the White House in the Obama administration, you know, there was some warnings that the U.S. would give its friends in the region, you know, careful with high levels of corruption, environmental degradation, disrespect for your labor laws, um, quality of the uh, equipment and infrastructure. So this has been a concern for a while. It's a more strident the way the U.S. approaches it now. Now, the interesting question is whether any of this will be restructured post-pandemic. Latin America's needs will grow tremendously after this. We've already talked about how vulnerable it was coming in. It had you know, years of slow growth. It was projected this year to only grow maybe you know, one and a half percent. It's now going to contract by over five percent, most likely. The you know, governments, whatever savings they had are being spent, whatever room to borrow is being borrowed for emergency stimulus. They're going to be in desperate need for outside help. The help now is a battleground between the U.S. and China, the so-called mask diplomacy of the Chinese, you know, selling or donating masks and ventilators and technical assistance. Um, and then afterward for the rebuilding of these economies. And the question that everyone is asking is, how is the U.S. competing with China now in terms of emergency support? And who will step up afterward to buoy these economies, provide assistance, investment? And also, will the U.S. or Chinese economies recover first? And in which case, which one will help you know, bring with it the economies in Latin America that depend upon those markets? So uh, we were seeing maybe in the last couple of years before this crisis, there was a growing skepticism of Chinese influence on the part of a lot of the countries that they were trying to come in and build this infrastructure. And I'm wondering, I know that that was the case in some places in Africa that they were working to build ports and things like that. 
And they would come in, like you said, with their own companies, their own resources, and in a lot of cases, their own workers. And the country, the host country, is really trapped with the debt. How is this working in Latin America in a place where they were already in a situation where they may not have had the resources or the economic ability to repay that debt? What are those situations like now? And are the Chinese willing to renegotiate? Or is that something that's going to have to wait until after this crisis? It's an interesting question. I think some of the you know perspective I think you've offered is a little dated um, and a little bit of wishful thinking. The idea that when the Chinese come in, it's substandard infrastructure, it's poor engineering. Um, some of it presupposes that governments cannot manage these projects, meaning apply their own environmental and labor standards, make sure that they're choosing projects well so that they enhance the productive capabilities of the country versus, you know, what you're referring to, the kind of debt trap narrative that Secretary Pompeo and President Trump often refer to, which, you know, assumes that either they're poorly chosen or poorly executed. And so you end up with the debt and nothing productive from the project itself. I think over time, unfortunately for the United States, China has improved in the way that it manages these projects. And some, though not all the governments in Latin America, have become more sophisticated in how they choose the projects. So the projects themselves, although they don't carry all the conditionality of a U.S. project or a World Bank project, could theoretically still be managed and create a train that people ride or that brings grain to a port that then is used to you know, lower the costs of exporting and make these economies more competitive. So I wouldn't assume that everything Chinese builds collapses or that all projects are the result of corruption. Though, again, that happens, unfortunately, all too often. And examples like Ecuador and Venezuela, you'll have this enormous debt overhang and not a lot to show for it. So again, it's not that there's nothing to this, but I think it's not as true as it was. And it's certainly not as clear cut as it sounds like if you listen to the administration now. The second question, who knows? I mean, China always goes back and forth, referring to itself as sort of a wealthy, powerful country. But when it comes to asking it for debt relief, we'll see, right? It may then, it, it's not a part of the Paris Club, the rich country group that collectively decides which poor and heavily indebted countries get debt relief. That'll be a big question coming out of this. If there's a transition in Venezuela, you can be sure the new government is going to be asking for some debt relief or postponing some of the debt payments. It'll be a really interesting, uncomfortable position for China to be in, because if they take a hard line, they play right into the U.S. narrative that, in fact, they're there intentionally creating unsustainable debt burdens just so they can seize infrastructure or have greater influence and pressure these partners, it'll be tough. And it's not where I think China wants to be. It's not the image it wants to create as the South-South partner working through solidarity, using methods different than the World Bank and the United States and this global infrastructure that imposes these foreign ideas and doesn't allow these governments to exercise their own free will and how they manage these investments. So it'll be really interesting to see how China manages this debt overhang. So we talked about China and kind of where they come in to try to do things in Latin America. The U.S. is involved there, too. So tell us about what the U.S. policy has been and how we've been involved and what countries look to the U.S. for. Yeah, I mean, I would just four seconds of history. Um, a lot of people sort of casually or even professionally focus on Latin America, focus a lot on the legacy of the U.S. imperialism in Latin America and the views which are held by some elites and certainly on the left in Latin America that, you know, the U.S. is always seen as this bully in the region. The reality is that public opinion is more favorable in Latin America regarding the U.S. than anywhere else on the planet. 
And the countries in Latin America that have the most trade with the U.S., receive the most remittances from the U.S., have the most cultural contact, like Central America, for example, have the most favorable views of the U.S. So even while we talk about the risk of Chinese soft power increasing in the region, I think that risk is serious and the risk of Chinese economic domination. And again, that's genuine. The U.S. has a real leg up when it comes to relations with Latin America. Now, that does not mean that it's inevitable that the U.S. will maintain that standing. And I think, you know, the migration policies towards Central America have hurt the U.S. standing. The reversal of the opening toward Cuba has hurt the U.S. standing in the region. You know, the sort of America first framing of trade protectionism has not been particularly popular, you know, with general populations in the region. And China has really stepped in. I mean, I don't think that's, you know, invented. China has stepped in not only economically, but it has come in and taken away countries that have recognized Taiwan over the last few years and flipped them. And during this pandemic, China has come in with lots of technical support and all these shipments, in part to recover from damage to its own image from its mishandling of the pandemic, and in part because it sees that the U.S., is mostly focusing on the emergency at home, again, understandably, because of the scale of the problem. But at the same time, China has said, look, these countries, you know, desperately need help and we are going to be the ones to provide it. So we'll see on the other side of this crisis whether the U.S. or China is strengthened uh, vis-a-vis one another in the region. But I will say this, the U.S. has a great structural advantage over China, and it would be a real shame to sacrifice it through policies that don't recognize the needs of the region. A lot of countries in the region, frankly, still prefer the U.S. as the partner. They turn to China as a second option. It's the U.S. where where the elites travel, where they get medical care, where their families are, you know, in school. So it's it's English that people are learning in Latin America. It's not Mandarin. Uh, so again, the U.S., I think when talking about the U.S. and China, I think it's correct that China is the one has been outpacing the U.S. in recent years and maybe is outmaneuvering the U.S. during the pandemic. But Latin America is the is America's to lose in a lot of ways when it comes to soft power, economic relationships and, and foreign assistance. Really, you name it. So somebody who watches this, what do you see out on the horizon uh, coming out of this? What are kind of the things that you're hopeful for? And what are the things that you are, frankly, scared of when you're watching Latin America? Unfortunately, it's, it's hard to be optimistic right now. Um, because as we've talked about, the, the condition going in, there was such high levels of, of public anguish. Um, the government simply did not have the wherewithal to answer these growing demands from a middle class that had been, you know, seeing itself losing its position um, in the country and slowly moving back toward poverty. Now you're seeing joblessness and poverty go through the roof again, you know, reversing gains that it took decades to accomplish. And, you know, where there are little hints of optimism, I think, unfortunately, they are very short term. I mean, governments, for example, that were quite unpopular coming into this year have often been rewarded for their public health measures. So in Argentina and Peru, you know, places that have Uruguay have come in and said, we are going to lock down the country, lock down the borders. We're going to impose really serious social distancing measures. Largely, the public has backed them. And so some people have been optimistic and say, OK, maybe the protests don't resume once people are allowed to be back in the street. Maybe that, you know, the instability of protests that reduces foreign investment, that imposes all these costs for additional spending, maybe it won't resume. Look how popular they are. Unfortunately, I don't think that that will endure because no matter how skillfully they're managing the public health part of this, they simply won't have the tools to manage the economic fallout. 
And so all these demands won't disappear for better education, better health care, again, less inequality. It's some of the most unequal countries in the world, high crime, you name it. And coming out of this, the governments will have even fewer resources to answer those demands. And they will, demands will be even amplified because of the results of this crisis, where again, you know, the jobless rate will have increased, poverty will have spread, and, you know, public services will be strained to the breaking point. So as much as I'd like to say, well, maybe people will come out with greater confidence in government and the governments will have the credibility to say you don't need to have protests, violent or otherwise. I'm hearing you and I'm addressing your needs. Um, I think, in fact, governments will have fewer resources and the demands will be even more stridently expressed. Well, Benjamin Gadan, the deputy director of the Latin American program at the Wilson Center, director of Argentina Project, and a host of some podcasts you should check out, which is the Argentina Project podcast and To The Point. You can find both of those on the Wilson Center website, on SoundCloud, on Spotify. Thanks so much for joining us again. Thank you for having me. This has been fun. That'll do it for this episode. I hope everyone stays safe, stays healthy. Keeps listening to the podcast to learn more of what you need to know. And we will be back next time. Thanks for joining us.